Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. Hello and welcome to Series 2, Episode 10 of Out with Susie Ruffle. How are you? I hope you're having a good week. It's sort of the beginning of the week, isn't it? Because this goes out on a Monday. But guys, I often record this bit on a Sunday. So it's the end of my week. But is it the end of a week on a Sunday? This is an interesting, this is an interesting way to start the podcast. I'm sorry. I hope whatever you're doing, you're okay. It is currently absolutely pissing down outside. And I'm flirting with going for a run but I don't know if it's going to happen if I'm honest um maybe a walk in the rain at some point which always feels slightly romantic to me um and I think that's because I had a very emotional response to the first episode of Ally McBeal where she kisses Billy in the rain it, it for me that was always the epitome of romance running through the rain to kiss someone so maybe maybe I'll see if the uh if my girlfriend will come with me, but I don't think she wants to go out, so I'll just have a very lonely, romantic time in the rain by myself. But listen, guys, this isn't what I'm here to talk to you about, about how I'm going to spend my Sunday where I'm not working, which I'm delighted about. I'm here to talk to you about the podcast. Thank you so much for everyone that got in touch after Juno Dawson's episode last week. Uh, lots and lots of you got in touch to say how much you enjoyed it. I think Juno's brilliant. And once again, I'd love to recommend her writing to you. Do look her up and get involved with one of her books. She's absolutely brilliant. Or if there's a young person in your life, or if you like reading um, young adult fiction, have a read of it or gift it to someone uh, that you think might enjoy it. Um, I think she's really, really great. Thanks to everyone that reviewed and tweeted and sent messages and of course the emails. Um, Thank you so, so much. As I always say, and I'm getting a bit like a broken record, but I do read them all. I'm always delighted to read them. And um, it fills my heart with joy when they come in. So thank you very much indeed. If you want to get in touch with me, please do. I'm on all of the social medias um, under some form of Susie Ruffle or Susie Ruffle Comedy. So you can get in touch with me there. Or the email address is hello at outwithsusieruffle.com. Feel free to use that at your leisure. This week's episode is with the brilliant writer Raven Smith. But of course, before we get to that, I'm going to share some emails with you. Lots of people have said this is one of the favourite parts of their show, or the favourite part of the show. So um, so thanks for saying that. Um, I really love that I get to share these. And if I've read out yours, I really hope that I've done a good job. And um, I've got another one to read right now. Hi, Susie. I wanted to start by saying how much I love your podcasts. Out and like-minded friends. They've really helped me through this strange time. I'm sat listening to the episode with Juno Dawson. And the experience of the person you read out at the top of the show compelled me to get in touch as it was a story that mirrored my own. 
I'm a gay guy in my early 30s and I live not a million miles from where you grew up. I didn't come out until my early 20s. Growing up and even in my teen years, sex and sexuality was not on my radar. I just don't remember fancying other people and I'd lie about fancying girls just to try and fit in, which I struggled with anyway because I have a disability. I got the confidence to explore my sexuality when I got a job in a pub where I grew as a person and it was there in the most unlikeliest of places, a small pub in a country village that I met some real allies. One introduced me to the local gay scene and took me for my first ever time out out. Another took me to my first pride parade and last year invited me to walk with her in the parade in London, an experience I shall never forget. I love hearing the varied stories you cover on the podcast from guests and people who reach out particularly as I've not always felt represented within the LGBTQIA community. As a gay man with a disability and a horse-mad country boy, it's rare that I see someone like me. I feel the media's aimed at the community sticks heavily to the stereotypes of body image and lifestyle. That seems to be at odds with how I see myself. When I look at magazines, for example, I don't see any other gay men that wear leg braces or use walking sticks. That said, I thought the Netflix series special was fantastic as it was based on a gay guy with cerebral palsy just like me. I just need to interrupt briefly. I've also watched the Netflix series special. It is so brilliant. Um, I highly, highly recommend it. If you haven't seen it, have a watch of it. It's really, really good stuff. I'd love if you could get someone who is LGBTQIA+, and who also has a disability on the podcast to share their story. Thank you for the fab work you do and stay safe. Do you know what? I'm going to respond to this immediately by apologising. I'm so sorry that I haven't got someone with a disability on the show. It seems so obvious to me. And as soon as I read that, I thought, oh, come on, Suze. How have you missed out this massive chunk of our community? So first of all, I'm sorry I haven't done that. And second of all, I will rectify it as soon as possible. I'm, uh, I'm going to do some research today. You've also given me someone uh, a, a, as a suggestion, so I'll, I'll reach out to them as well. Um, but you're absolutely right. This podcast is all about representation. And I'm sorry that I haven't represented uh, you yet, but I'm on it. I promise you, I'm on it like a car bonnet. Okay, on to our next email. Uh, and thank you for emailing in. I don't know if I said that, but thank you very much for emailing in. And I'm so delighted you like the podcast and the recommendation of special on Netflix. Okay, here we go. Another one. Hello, Susie and team. Guys, I love it when you put and team. The team is me and my producer, Michael. It's a huge team. But, um, and also the cat Velma. So just so you've got a little image in your head for when you say team. Hello, Susie and team. Oh my, oh my, oh my. I've just listened to your episode with Laura Checkley where you talked about shame and it was exactly what I needed to hear. Usually I would never contemplate writing anything like this, but Laura's story resonated with me on so many levels. I just had to email in to let you know. I think it will leave a lasting impact on me in a good accepting way. I now feel less alone and less fearful as a result. In the last few years, I've had multiple, what my therapist calls, AFGOs. And then in brackets, another fucking growth opportunity, which I've got to say I absolutely love. I will be using that in my day-to-day life. It's been a real journey and incredibly hard and painful having to face my demons. By far the most difficult have been acknowledging just how deep the shame of being a lesbian runs inside me. I've discovered that it's permeated every part of my life. And whilst on paper, you'd probably say I've got things pretty sorted. I have the most incredible loving partner, a successful career, supportive pals and family. Underneath my jovial character, I'm always grappling with strong feelings of shame. When I'm feeling compassionate towards myself, which is rare, see aforementioned feelings, 
of shame above, I become so overwhelmed with how much contempt I have for myself that I can't hold back the tears. But as I say, this is rare. I spend most of my time being as stoic as possible in relation to this because it's become too painful if I focus on it for too long. I even struggle to say the word lesbian and opt for gay woman or saying lesbian in a voice that sounds more like a whisper on a breeze. Lesbian. I'm imagining you saying it like that. In an odd way, it was weird to hear Laura speak about experiences very similar to mine. I too spent my teenage years resisting my sexuality, having relationships with men and hating both it and myself for not being able to be normal. I would have given anything in that moment to take a pill and just become straight, anything. When I eventually did have my first relationship with a woman, it was shrouded in secret and hidden, similar to both of you, and it did not help matters. It's really hard to explain what the feeling of wanting and not wanting something in equal measure can do to you. But at times, it was unbearable. I'm happy to say that I'm in a much better place now. I would never take that pill. But I can't pretend I've not still got a long way to go before I can truly accept myself. Hearing you both speak about similar experiences and feelings to mine and how you've overcome them give me hope. It makes me feel a little less alone and demonstrates that I should cut myself some slack. Shame is hard to move on from, but it will happen. So to end, thank you for the show, for the representation and for experiences like mine being given a voice. It means so much to me and I'm hopeful that everything is going to be all right. Thank you so much for sending that in. I'm never sure whether to share people's names when uh, when they write in. So maybe if you do write in, say you can share my name or not. I'm not going to share your name, um, just in case you don't want people to know it's you. But I'm so pleased that mine and Laura's story has resonated with you. I think that's something that I've learned more than anything else from this podcast is how, how, how we're not alone and how we are a community that are tied together by these by these experiences of shame. And I don't think it's just for queer people. I think it's for anyone that feels slightly outside of the box. Um, so thank you for writing that in. Um, your, your email really got me because I feel like we're probably very similar. Um, so thank you for taking the time out. Um, I've also received a number of emails this week from our allies. As ever, guys, you guys rock. Thank you for always listening. Thank you for reaching out. Thank you for always wanting to be part of this as well. I love that. Right, let's move on to today's show. Um, oh, I should probably mention if you want to get in touch, you can. I think I mentioned the email before, but it's hello at outwithsusieruffle.com. Can you tell I'm doing this quite early on a Sunday morning? I told you I haven't been for my run. I'm probably not going for a run. Let's get on with the podcast. This week, I am talking to the brilliant Raven Smith. We had a real laugh recording this and massive thanks to him for coming on the show. And I really hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. I am so excited to chat to today's guest. It is my favourite columnist, Raven Smith. Now, he writes for The Times and Vogue and is easily the funniest man on Instagram. If you're not following him, do it right now, like right this minute and then thank me later. He's whip smart, hilarious, and as engaging as he is honest. He's also a best-selling author and has just released a book, Trivial Pursuits, which I highly recommend. I am delighted to have him on today's show. Welcome to the show, Raven. Hello. How Hello. are you? What a nice intro. I'm a big fan of your writing, so it's very exciting to talk to you. Thank you. I'm a big fan of writing the whole endeavour of writing, getting words on a page is something I'm always relieved to have done. Do you do it every day? No. I mean, I say no, like, I sort of, uh, something about me is always creating a piece in some way every day. 
but I'm not I'm not actually putting pen to paper or fingers on the keyboard I'm constantly note-taking which is how I sort of string out ideas well how do you do that on your phone like on do you do audio I do I have an audio app that just um translates everything you say into it and that has been really helpful with especially when writing the book with never sitting down to a blank page, which can always feel quite daunting day after day after day after day. Uh, and then I also just compulsively write one-liners whenever they occur to me and just keep them in a little file on my computer. Oh, so does that mean that all of the funny things that you say on Instagram have been written months before and no. you just find the perfect photo <laughs> for it? Um, I think for me, when, no, 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 no. But when, like, when something's funny, it hits the the zeitgeist. It hits exactly how we feel right now. And so, you know, me making a note about what I'm having for dinner might not be hitting the zeitgeist. So sometimes right. it's an it's a ye archi- ye old archive line, or, mm-hmm. and sometimes it's like, oh, I feel exactly like this right in this moment. I follow so many stand-ups, well, I mean, of course I do, on Instagram, and you are funnier than all of them by a mile. Very kind. (laughs) I'm sorry to any of my stand-up friends that are listening to this, but your Instagram posts are often screen-grabbed and then passed around in my friendship group. That's exactly what I want to hear. Some kind of dark web trading. (laughs) Yeah, 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 totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I do all of of my stuff on the dark web. So we're actually recording this via the dark web, so I'm pleased that you've noted that. People are selling arms in here. What's going on? (laughs) (laughs) Just ignore it. Just ignore it. It's fine. Um, So did you always want to be a writer? No, actually. I think there's this idea that writing is this not miracle what's the word I'm looking for like I had more of an epiphany rather than was working towards this kind of holy grail of writing a book and I think I've always been gobby had loads of opinions been really thoughtful and hyper overly emotional and really those two things bubbling away all the time and the when I first I was doing like interviews for people when I was working Mm-hmm. Um, and people were interviewing me and I was like, Do you know what, this is quite nice when you get to write little pithy replies to people over, you know, 400 words. And then that's just slowly became my job, just longer pithy replies to what's going on in the world. I, I would love to, you know, I get a lot of people asking me, how do I become a writer? What's your idea? And I was like, I've been writing four years officially for me it's just all the tributaries of the things that I'm good at things that really challenge me and I find really hard wanting to be funny and create this space where we're all laughing together all of that comes together when I write I read one of your articles in the times about uh your relationship with your mum which was very Mm. lovely and funny and it said you were loud and dramatic as a child Mm. which I like were you (laughs) did you like being like the center of attention yeah. Oh, it's such a thing you're not meant to admit, maybe. Oh, no. I mean, I've made a career out of showing off. Don't okay, worry. Fine. I think it's totally fine. I've never been quiet and I've never been shy and retiring. But I've also, within the kind of extrovertism of my life, have always been thoughtful and, and, and emotional too. And I, I would say that the power of a good piece and the power of a good joke and the power of really talking to people is tapping into like the most honest emotion which I always worry that it sounds so vague when you say I'm trying to be brutally honest but the idea that I don't hide anything that really excavating how I feel is actually where the rub is between me and other people that's where the Venn diagram suddenly becomes a circle when I'm like 
I really felt like this very specifically at this very specific time, rather than, oh, summer's lovely, isn't it? It's always sunshine. Everyone loves shorts, you know? So it's like getting away from the from the broad and get, and pincering in on the specific is, it, it for me, is where the magic is, totally. I You know, I was lucky when I was a kid in that my parents broke up and it was just me and my mum. So I had I had a lot of attention. I didn't, like, need it. I just had it. So mm-hmm. there's a level at which I expect it rather than demand it. I just expect it. I get confused. When people aren't giving me attention, I'm like, something weird is happening. So <laughs> it's not necessarily attention seeking. It's just this complete, just so used to having adult attention as well. So not, I, I think I was a, quite a grown up kid and maybe I was a bit precocious, just a touch. But I was definitely, you know, when I left the park after playing with my friends, my mum would talk to me about, adult stuff you know what her friends were up to rather than me being the kids it's not the kids and the adults and the adults send the kids to bed and have their adult conversation my mum would and I would just talk about I feel like everything all the time and are you still like that now yeah 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 I would talk I I can lose you know three hours on FaceTime with my mum literally just calling her to say I'm we're gonna come and see you next week I'll just lose time time just disappears yeah we just chat and chat I think it's one of these things. I don't have it with men. With men, when I talk to men, they're much more like, this is the conversation we're having and these are the, this is the road we're going down and we're going down it. And when I talk with women, you just circle back on things. You can be talking about, I will talk to my mum for like two minutes and we'll have talked about life, love, death, <laughs> sex, what's for dinner, <laughs> what we like on TV, a lot of talk about Zadie Smith. You know, we, we were just... It just circles round and round. And I think that's a really interesting way to kind of communicate with somebody. I read in another one of your articles of how you talk about sort of having this female friendship group. Mm. And did you always have that? Was it always girls that you were sort of drawn to even as yeah. a child? Yeah, I didn't have very many male friends. I could, I can think of them all, which tells you everything you need to know. <laughs> I definitely have always been better friends with women more than men. I remember really vividly on the train home from secondary school, some boy being like, do you like girls company more than boys? And I was like, what are you on about? And he's like, just tell me. And I was like, sure. And he was like, oh my God. Like he was dumbfounded by that. (laughs) I I mean, I'm sure he's fine now. I was just going to say something mean about him. He's just a traditional (laughs) man. It's fine. Let him have his snide comment that he will never think of again and I will bring up 20 years later on a podcast (laughs) (laughs) so you grew up in Brighton didn't you yes I grew up in Portsmouth which is just down the coast but Brighton for me always felt very queer it felt very exciting it felt like a place where people could just be who they were and no one really gave a shit which I Mm. loved but as someone growing up there did it feel like that or was it yeah, it's really multicultural. It's really modern. My mum knew loads of gay people. I knew loads of gay people. I knew loads of people from different ethnic backgrounds. But for me, it, I saw a template of how to be a gay man. And I was like, oh, I don't know if that's for me, really. So, and I, and I have this, just talking to like my gay friends nowadays who grew up in smaller, kind of less had less access to any kind of gay culture. They, I think they felt like a certain level of salvation, like they needed that community because they'd felt so isolated. Whereas I was like, oh, I don't really want to wear a tight top. It's, you know, it's 1995, I want to wear <laughs> baggy jeans. <laughs> I want to go to drum and bass nights. So I think there was a level for me at which 
I was spoiled for choice, which is probably the best position to be in as an adolescent. What did that template of like a gay man look like? It's really difficult because for me, it felt like a stereotype. And yet I was a stereotype of a drum and bass mixed race kid. So it's really hard, but I think I just didn't want to be, I didn't want to go to revenge nightclub in a, in a <laughs> tight top. I just, it, I would just felt like it wasn't going to serve me in any way. In a mm-hmm. way, I reminisce of my youth and wish I'd been more experimental in the, and tried those things rather than think just deciding it wasn't for me. But I think I lived very much like a person who happened to be gay rather than a gay man when I was younger. And I, well, I guess that's part of not really knowing what the fuck I was doing. But I think I just felt much more like I'm all these things and I also happen to be gay rather than it feeling defining for me. But I felt the same about being black and I felt the same about being tall. And I just, in more recent times, recognise the kind of history of being tall and being black aren't don't have the same history. So there's a level at which I look back on those times and think, I wish I'd just embraced it and thought, fuck it, and not worried so much about being cool to my other sixth form straight girl mates. Yeah, I completely know <laughs> what you're talking about with that because I remember being very clear about the type of lesbian I wanted to be and the type of lesbian I didn't want to be. And I would often say exactly as you said, I just happen to be gay. I'm all these other mm. things. I do all these other things. I just happen to be gay. It's just who I go to bed with. It doesn't define who I am. Mm. And actually, years later, I sort of had some realisation that maybe some of that, and I'm not saying it's the same with you, but some of that was certainly a form of like, me not necessarily being as comfortable as I thought I was yeah. and sort of dismissing these ideas of of queerness because I was still trying to appeal to my mainly straight friendship group. Yeah. And I was very happy doing it at the time. I wasn't like, oh, I shouldn't. There was no conscious sort of, oh, I should be more straight. I no. was just like, I don't want to go to I don't want to go to that club. But then I guess I, I would proffer that regardless of your sexuality, you're just in your adolescence and as you're emerging from it. You are just trying on personalities. You're trying on ways of being. A bit like being at Topshop. Seeing if they suit you. (laughs) Does this suit me? Do I feel good in this? Not really. Okay. Maybe we'll try and get these disparate parts of like my entire system of desire and love and care not being separate from going out and having a good time and studying at college. At what age were you when you realised that you, I don't know, it's different for different people, like realised you weren't straight or realised an attraction to boys or not being attracted to girls? Forever. I don't remember, I don't remember a time when I, I just knew, I always knew. I just never, I was never unsure. I just shut up about it when I was about 11, maybe when I was like, oh, I was never like, oh, I wonder if I like boys. I was like, I just like men. That's Mm -hmm. it. I just knew, and that's, you know, a privilege of its own. But I, and then I was never, I I came out to my mum on the phone as gay. Like I was, there was never a transition or anything. Like I wasn't bi, I wasn't confused. I was like, I'm gay. Mm -hmm. She was like, okay. (laughs) Okay, steamroller in my life. You know, my, my, me and my son that I live with, the only man in my life is just throwing a fucking grenade in it. And now... I, you know, she was reeling for sure, even though in her heart she knew, I think she was reeling from, I think for my mum, bringing up a mixed race kid who was always other, I was always 
different from the boys at my school. I think she just assumed it was race. And I think she wanted me to, like most parents, wanted me to have an easy route through my life. And she was like, and now he's gay. This is not an easier route through his life. You know, I think she was terrified for me and had her own, you know, liberal 80s views of being gay that suggested to her that, you know, it wasn't about settling down with one person or do you know what I mean? She's, despite being so supportive, she took me to San Francisco, you know, three months later, we walked around Castro. Yeah, I mean, I could not ask for more support. But I think she also learned about being a gay man from me as well as, do do you know what I mean? Like she realised it wasn't the stereotype that she had. Not stereotypes too strong. But her preconceptions of it, I think we both were like, oh, it doesn't have to be in in the lineage of what it means for a liberal gay person in 1980s Brixton. It's it's not the same thing necessarily. Yeah. And do you think like knowing gay people as you were growing up and your mum having gay men in her friendship group, did that make it, I mean, I would have assumed that that made it easier, but I wonder if because of some preconceived ideas, was it a barrier or, or did that make it easier? It's just mortifying to, to, to talk about your sexuality to your parents. I can't believe that's something we have to do. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I totally absolutely agree. absolutely mortifying. A straight person will never tell their mum, like, by the way, I like this sexual position. But if you're gay, yeah. you've got to make this announcement to everyone. You've got to make this announcement. And it is definitely to do, when you're a, a gay man, it's definitely you're saying, I like willies. You're literally, there's no other, there's no subtext. You're like, I like penises. That's all you're saying. And my mum was like, cool, man. You know, you don't have to say that as a, as a straight woman or you don't have to say that as a straight man. I like vaginas, mum. It's like, ah! <laughs> and what age were you um i was sitting in my mock gcses uh so 15 right maybe a bit younger someone called me a faggot on the bus i was in a really bad mood when i got home and i rang my mum the next day and i was like someone called me a faggot on the bus and she's like are you and i was like yeah <laughs> and then that was it <laughs> wow and she, i put the phone like i put the phone down and i felt light as air like an aerated waffle floating out to <laughs> look at pre-Raphaelite art for my mock GCSE art. And I think she just cried and was was so spun out by it, just mm-hmm. reeling from the from the admission and the 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 clarity of it. And I think for her it was a bit more of a regroup, how am I gonna be about it? Whereas I felt like, oh, I can be now I can do anything. There's no secret in my life whatsoever. It's really difficult because I always I often I have a, a a tendency not to think of the bad things that have happened to me as bad necessarily. And I think she reminded me really recently about the time I got I was really upset and I was like, no one understands me. All my friends are straight. All they care about is girls. This is like the sexual, our sexuality at 16 is, it's just like, it's all that matters to anyone. And I'm gay and I don't know what to do about it. And she was like, oh, let's go to, why don't you go to this gay support group around the corner? So I was like, okay. (laughs) They met every Thursday night and they met for an hour and I got there in the last maybe 10 minutes. I remember walking around outside and being like, Oh, this is like just feeling very fraught about it. Going in and just being like, oh, all these gay people are just like gay people. It was like the, a woman was really nice to me and I was like, oh my God, okay. And I just remember feeling potent rather than suppressed. Like I remember feeling, not right. sexy, but like, oh, I can express a sexual part of myself 
nothing is like retracted in any way. And, and, and as you know, from reading my work and knowing my Instagram, I'm not retracted like that. It's no. the opposite. So it was, it was, a, it must've been a lot of work to kind of lessen myself in, in, at that time. And I just remember feeling completely lifted. I was much quieter just before I came out and I was just like, oh, I'm fine now. Oh, we're on the road. Here we go. And did you move away from Brighton to go to university? Yeah, I moved to London when I was 19. So a couple of years after that. But I flourished at sixth form. I mean, I walked into sixth form like a new man. Sort of came out to all my mates over the summer and walked into sixth form like, I am ready to be a fantastic person. (laughs) Whatever that entails. I loved it. What were you studying? (laughs) Uh, photography, art and psychology Oh, so artsy-fartsy uh, And English I think I did English Lit as well And I just felt very Like full of opportunity You know, Not, I always say to people that When I was 19, it was the best year of my life My parents kind of My mum and my stepdad met when I was about 14 And they would go away quite a lot of weekends As I was getting older And 19 was this year where I had almost zero responsibility apart from taking photos of things yeah uh, the fridge was always full my parents went away <laughs> all the time like my mum knew I was a smoker so I got to smoke rollies in the garden it was like this just optimum living of like the and I remember all the books that I read at the time like I was just like absorbing and ready and like gearing up for a, for this like anticipation of this big humongous exciting life obviously moving to London as soon as possible. Uh, so I moved to London and did a degree in photography and was like trying to be a libertine. I mean, <laughs> very naff now, but at the time it just felt like there was just an energy about it that I just felt excited about it all. It was sort of like a resurrection of Cool Britannia about that time. And yes. I just felt like it was buzzing. You know, it felt so good uh, to be out of the closet out of Brighton, even though it wasn't suppressive, but like make just make making my own decisions about the world. Yeah, making waves elsewhere. Yeah, and whenever I meet like people whose kids are nineteen, I'm like, this this is it, by the way, <laughs> this is the year. <laughs> and they're like, I'm miserable. I'm like, yeah, maybe I was too. I just you know. <laughs> At this point, when you were going to sixth form, were you into fashion then? Were you into? Were you reading Vogue? Were you? I was reading. Oh, was I reading Vogue? No, but that makes me feel like a traitor. Um, I was reading <laughs> The Face, like the Bible. Yeah. I read it all through secondary school. I would carry it in my bag for a whole month and then replace it with the next one when the month was over. I would pour over it. I would buy all their book recommendations. I remember so vividly living it, having The Face as a Bible. Um, and it kind of started to lose its way about the time I moved to university. And then Days are Confused as well. I would just read them both. And absolutely, I, I thought I was going to be a fashion photographer when I was at sixth form and doing my foundation. I just felt out of love with the kind of lack of meaning and a lot of the fashion photography that we were kind of being encouraged to make and got much more into kind of fine art photography at that point. Still dress nice, but I used to talk about this idea of the perfect outfit. It has loads of points all around it, which is like... T- like vintage, modern, young, old, like the perfect outfit is this kind of middle ground where you, 
it, it's touching on all this heritage and ideas, but just feels light touch, just feels effortless. A lot of effort goes into looking effortless in your, yeah, up until fairly recently, I would say. I want it to be cool. I want it to be cool. And it was, it's actually quite, it, it can become quite inhibiting trying to be cool. It can get quite tiring. It's just stressful. <laughs> yeah, it's much more fun to be like, and now the full me is coming out and I don't care. <laughs> um, I really enjoyed both in the book and in your articles, you talk a lot about your relationship and mm. the uh, the chapter on marathon love, which I loved. Mm. Um, did you, you sort of mentioned earlier about sort of your mum's maybe ideas of like an 80s version of what a gay man was, like sort of never settling down. Was that mm. something that you always really wanted to do, that you wanted to marry? Yeah. Yeah. I definitely wanted to set, I definitely wanted to be loved. And mm-hmm. that I think was... A universal thing. I don't think that's unique, but I, there's a level at which I don't know if I wanted to settle down. I still feel now that I didn't sleep with enough people when I was younger. Like I re- reminisce over being very hot and very tall <laughs> and eating whatever I wanted and being thin. Like I remember these heady days and think, and all those people that I was like, oh, I don't know, bye, I can't do it. So I, I, I sort of reminisce about misspending my twink years but I'm very happy to be settled I always just assumed I'd have a family and that's coming up quite a bit in your articles at the minute and also in the book about starting a family I feel really bad because I just seem to be I'm really going to town on talking about surrogacy and I -hmm. I think I'm I'm, I've become more and more aware there's something in my biology and my physicality that wants to have kids and I, mm-hmm. I'm sort of unable to move beyond it at all. And there's no, you know, my mum's like, you've got no biological clock, really, Raven. That's not really how it works for men. And I was like, yeah. I know, but something is telling me this is it. This is the time. No, I know what you mean. I mean, I think it is different in men and women, but I know that I got to sort of 32, 33, and my body started going, have a baby, have a baby, have a baby, yeah. have a baby, have a baby, just constantly. To the, Yeah, just like seeing babies everywhere. And, it's and weird, I think it's, isn't it? Yeah, and I think it's the thing. Like, I've got lots of friends that are that are got lots of straight friends that have had children. I've got lots of gay friends that are doing it in their own way. Mm. But it, I am you do sort of get to an age, don't you, where you go like the the brunches are gone, and now it's like uh, an afternoon in the park with lots of tiny yeah, people. I quite like. I'm I'm very good at being a gay uncle, but I think there's a level at which I. So many things happen to me throughout a single day where I am like, I could never be a parent. Like (laughs) (laughs) morning to midnight, I'm reminded of all the reasons why I could never be responsible for somebody else's life. And yet something is still compelling me to just feel like, is this where the trib- all this stuff is leading? What is the meaning of it all if I don't have kids? What does that what does that really mean? Do I need to reconcile with not having kids? Or do I need to knuckle down? Or do I need to just chill out? Like I can't, I, I go round and round on it a, a lot. But I don't feel sad or frustrated. I just can't work out how to make it happen any faster. There's no real sort of cheat sheet. No. There's no, you know, take the condom off. <laughs> and we'll just see how it goes. <laughs> Let's just, we're not not trying. We're not trying. Try- <laughs> not, not trying. Like 
<laughs> we don't have that. It's a lot of organising for gays having babies. Yeah. I mean, you can do it. There's a number of ways to do it. There's adoption, there's surrogacy, there's um, IVF. But yeah, it is, there's a lot, it's lots, whatever you do, there's quite a lot of forms, it seems. I suddenly had this realisation that I was like, maybe I won't be a dad until I'm in my 40s. And then I was like, oh, that's, that's totally manageable. <laughs> yeah. I wasn't like, oh no. I was like, oh wait, I've, maybe I just won't be a dad till I'm in my 40s. Maybe that I don't need to like, it more, it's so amorphous. It's this central cloud that's like, yeah. you're going to have a child. And then it just... It fills up the whole space around me and yet is completely invisible and can't see it at all. And then every so often I'm like, but I can barely feed myself. I don't know what is in this meal. I don't know what the <laughs> nutritious value of this is. How am I going to stop this child having rickets? Like, I feel like that a lot. <laughs> My kid with bow legs and I'll be like, yeah, I just kept giving her salt. I don't, what's the problem? <laughs> But look how pretty her clothes are. Look at her shoes. She's laughing. And, oh, well, you know what happened? We, I, I've got a cat and I was feeding him uh, whiskers. This cat sitter came over and he was like, why are you feeding your cat whiskers? It's like eating McDonald's. And I was like, yeah, you can eat McDonald's. And he was like, you can eat McDonald's all day, every day for your whole life, but you're... You don't have a long life, do you, Raven? And I was like, oh my God. And we looked, he was like, your cat's just eating loads of salt and sugar. He's high. And we looked over and the cat was looking at us like he was tweaking. And I was like, oh my God, I'm, I hadn't even, I just bought cat food and fed him the cat food, but he's off his tits. So, and then we went away for 10 days and the cat sitter just weaned him off. <laughs> now he's on something for like bone density and good teeth and all that stuff. But I just, I was so proud of just feeding the cat. I was like, the cat is being fed every day. What more do you want? Smart. Yeah, what what does this what does this cat want from me? He's like not to be tweaking 24-7. It's really difficult having a cat, you know? Because mine and my husband's we have a we have conversations through the cat, so we don't have to have them with each other. Right. This happens all the time. The cat seems stressed, which is like, I'm stressed, <laughs> I'm stressed. <laughs> cat seems very stressed today, doesn't he? Like we have both have very different ways of nurturing and mm -hmm. mine for, for the cat is now, how can he be as healthy and happy as possible? And Richard's like, how do we treat him? Can he have more treats? What more treats can we give him? So we, we have this battle between me saying, looking after someone is nourishing them fully and keeping them healthy. And his is like, no, it's spoiling them. So we have this kind of, it just, it's playing out. And then I'm like, this little voice goes, you're not ready to have a child, are you? <laughs> I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm right. Okay, I can't agree on. I was like, this is how much the cat food weighs. Look, this is it on the scale. Look, 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 look. And he's like, give him a prawn. Give him a prawn. <laughs> <laughs> um, earlier, you said that when you were at college, at sixth form, you were sort of ready for this new, exciting life. Now, mm. for someone that sort of just sees your life as a mixture of writing and some pictures on Instagram and some funny quotes next to mm. uh, some pictures of celebrities, it, it feels like you have that exciting life where you're out, you're oh. happy. Does it feel like you have it? No. I mean, <laughs> oh, wait, no. <laughs> is my life as exciting as it looks? Yes and no. You know, I think my life is day to day. I am on my own huge amounts of time thinking, mm -hmm. stuck in my own head, trying to record thoughts and emotions and express them. 
Um, there's a level at which writing basically shows your best side to the whole world. So there's a kind of impetus to be your most charismatic and take someone on a some kind of journey in the piece. It's a bit of a, a dance of sorts. Sometimes it's a tango and sometimes mm-hmm. it's, I don't know, a waltz. I don't know. I don't really like waltzy pieces. But I think, I, I you know, they are complete pieces that make sense. And I think you, and that's the same with an Instagram post for me. You know, it's a, it's a, yeah. it's a just a little nugget of, where, of well-roundedness. And I think like most people, I'm not that well-rounded. You know, I'm really, I get really grumpy. I get really, imp- I'm really impatient. And I just don't think it's very, there is a level at which in some of my most wry and best pieces actually reflect that reality of being crap at being human. I don't think I'll ever be at my best for longer than like a couple of hours. I just don't believe in it. I really would love to be like my best self, but I'm too busy. I'm too busy. <laughs> yeah, I think I think that constantly asking people to live their best lives is just exhausting. I just think it's unreasonable. And unrealistic. And can, totally absurd and totally meaningless. I mean, it's ridiculous. When you think about like what it takes to survive, being mm-hmm. grumpy is not, is fine. <laughs> if you're going to get through this life from cradle to grave... You're allowed a few grumpy spells. It's tough. But I also appreciate that I like to make things look easy, that all of the thinking and analysing and all of those cogs, that's actually not what people want when they read something. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I often find is I became completely obsessed with challenging myself. I was like, I love to challenge myself. And then every time I do something new, so last week I wrote a, like a gallery essay for someone's gallery opening. And I was like, this is really fucking hard. I hate challenging myself. So there's a level at which I love <laughs> challenging myself. And yet the challenge is so t- can be so tough to just put on a different hat and try and make it work and style it out. And I sent the piece and they loved it. And I was like, another string to my bow, gallery essays. Let's go, let's do this. So I think for me, the growth comes from testing myself, but the testing is so testing it's exhausting and then you kind of become this person who is exhausting themselves all the time and I just I wonder if I'm trying to work out the best way to retreat from constantly Mm -hmm. trying to push at the bound like fill the balloon more fill the balloon more there is a level at which it's not going to pop but it it can just be content actually just be as it is for a little while without Constantly stretching. Yeah, and I love the stretching and I don't want to stop. (laughs) And also, as part of this kind of nutty growth thing, I find it very hard to register my achievements. So I said to my my friend came over and she went, everyone thought 2020 was going to be their year and it went to shit. And I was like, oh my God, so true. That's so true. You've completely hit the nail on the head. And I said to my husband, everyone's been saying 2020 is going to be their year and it completely went to shit. Isn't that just so true? And he's like, these are like 10 things you've done on lockdown. (laughs) <laughs> 10 massive achievements. You've released a book in a pandemic. You've got a new book coming. You're like, you've signed a new book deal. You've done this. You've got a vocal. And I was like, yeah, okay. Maybe I, maybe the growth thing doesn't, you know, I love momentum, but maybe I can just take my foot, just cruise for a little while. And enjoy it. And enjoy it. Yeah. Um, Raiden, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Now, I ask everyone the same question at the end of the podcast, okay. which is if you could either go back in time to a version of you or 
pick up the phone and ring someone that's listening to this that is feeling like the version of you when you were 16 and you felt like no one understood you Mm. and just before your mum took you along to that group if you could give them a bit of encouragement about life what would you say oh that is a really tough question you don't you do you just don't get anywhere by pretending that is that's it that's my little um what is it like fortune cookie you don't get anywhere by pretending. I think that's my biggest lesson of my whole life. Yeah. That's perfect. Well, that was Raven Smith. He's absolutely brilliant and so funny. I want to plug his book. It's called Trivial Pursuits. Also, you've got to get on his Instagram. It's so bloody funny. I think you'll love it. Thank you as ever for listening to the podcast. I will be back next week with another episode. As ever, you can get in touch with me if you want. I'm on all the socials. I've mentioned the email. It's in the show notes. Uh, You take care. Have a great week and I'll speak to you next time. Mm